good morning everyone. My name is Caitlin and I'll be your scripture reader for today. Our passage today is taken from John 20 verses 1 to 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see all of you all this Sunday morning, and I see a few new faces here, and I haven't had the opportunity to get to talk to you. I'll, uh, I'll definitely like to talk to you after this service. Now, for those of you who are new to our church, my name is Joel. I'm the pastoral intern here at One Covenant Church. And it's really so good to see all of us gathered together this morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And indeed, as we come before God, as we hear from His Word, let's come before God now and ask for His blessing as we hear from Him. So let's come before God now in a time of prayer. Oh, Father, we thank You for giving us Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You that our Lord didn't just die for our sins, but He rose again, and He rose again on high. And Father, as we come together to meditate on the significance of what Jesus did when He came back from the dead, Father, would You humble each one of our hearts, Lord, as we hear from Your Word. And Father, would You grant us joy as we hear from Your Word. And so we entrust this time to Your hands to pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a saying that we might have heard of, and this saying goes like this. If it, is, if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably isn't true. If it sounds too good to be true, then it probably isn't true. Now, imagine this scenario. Imagine receiving a text that tells you that you have won $50 million. How would you respond to that text? Well you'll probably dismiss it immediately, right? And the reason is because it's most likely a scam. And in fact, if you examine the text carefully, you'll probably find all of the telltale signs that point to this as a scam. Now yet, why do we find it so hard to believe in such things, in this kind of offers at first sight? Now apart from the fact that scams are becoming more common these days, so don't click that suspicious link. There's something else as well, because if these offers are indeed true, then we know that our lives will become very different once we accept something this good. Well, the resurrection of Jesus is similar as well. It can sound so unbelievable to our ears that we actually question its veracity we actually wonder whether it is true or not. So this is the question on the veracity of the resurrection. But we might go one step further and ask another question. 
even if it's true, even if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then why does it matter? Why does it matter something that happened over 2,000 years ago? And what is the significance of that for people like us living in 2022? And what we'll find in our passage this morning is that the resurrection is not only true, it is true, but it's not only true, but that our lives will change once we accept and believe this truth. Now, two days ago, we remember the death of Jesus on Good Friday. Jesus Christ was hung on the cross and he drew his last breath. The Son of God came so that he may die for the sins of the world. And after he was crucified, Jesus, the followers of Jesus, had him buried. And at the point of time, at least for the disciples, at least for the followers of Jesus, all hope seemed lost. And yet our passage this morning tells us a different story. It tells us that Jesus didn't remain dead. It tells us that Jesus is alive and that there is hope for those who belong to him. So as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on this glorious Easter Sunday, I would like to show us three things about the Christian faith, about the nature of the Christian faith based on this passage about the resurrection. And these are the three things. That number one is all-encompassing. And what it means is that the Christian faith is inclusive and not exclusive. Second, it is compelling that there are persuasive reasons for thinking why the resurrection is in fact true. And third thing is encouraging. It gives us hope to live in the present. So we'll begin with the first point, that the Christian faith is all-encompassing, that it is inclusive. Now we come to our text this morning and we're introduced to this scene on a somewhat gloomy note. We're told in verse 1 that it was still dark because it was early in the morning. And yet this darkness seems to be saying something else. It seems to be telling us that the grief in the previous passage, the grief from the death of Jesus has been carried forward into our passage today. And it seems that the grief is very real, that people are still mourning over the death of Jesus. But immediately in the first verse, we are given a hint that things might be turning for the better. So if you look at verse 1, it tells us that the stone which covered the tomb had been rolled open. And verse 2 tells us that Jesus was missing from the tomb. Now to understand the significance of what's happening here, we need to look at several things. And first, we'll look at the eyewitnesses that are actually presented in this account. Now who were the first few eyewitnesses of the empty tomb? Now verse 2 says that there was Simon Peter. And Simon Peter, he has appeared before, and this is his first appearance since he denied Jesus three times as he was being captured. And yet here we find Peter being concerned about Jesus. He was concerned about the missing bodies, so he decided to go look for him. And so we find a character like Peter over here. And then there was the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and presumably this refers to John himself, the author of the book. Now, both of these names would not have been a surprise to the ancient readers because they knew that Peter and John, they were the closest disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's actually not very surprising to find their names here, that they were the first few eyewitnesses. 
But notice something. Who was the first name that was actually mentioned in this text? Who was the one who actually informed Peter and John about the empty tomb? It was Mary Magdalene. Um, we saw her name in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, and Mary was one of Jesus' female followers during his earthly ministry. Now for us, when we look at Mary's name, it might not seem much to us, but I think that the fact that John has included her name as one of the first few eyewitnesses is actually very significant for us this morning. Now why is that? Now I think some historical context might be helpful for us. You see, in first century Mediterranean society, which was the world that Jesus inhabited, women, by and large, were viewed as very lowly persons. There was a very low view of women in that society. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, there was such a low view of women that, as one scholar puts it, they were seen as gullible in religious matters, and their testimonies at law courts would have been considered as less than credible. So there was a very low view of women. And this is a very different view from what we have in our modern society. And the interesting thing is that when you look at the other gospel accounts, we look at Matthew, we look at Mark, and look at Luke, the interesting thing is that you will find other women that were present as eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Now some of us might wonder if the resurrection is in fact true since it is so unbelievable. And maybe the testimonies about Jesus coming back to life were all untrue. And yet at the same time, if the testimonies were indeed invented, then why would the gospel writers actually make it even more difficult for us to understand by including women as eyewitnesses of the empty tomb? Now remember the context that they were in, that the testimonies of women were considered less credible back in that society. So why would John, over here in our passage, include Mary's name to try and convince people about the resurrection? And the most plausible explanation for the inclusion is this, and as one scholar puts it this way, the remembrance of the tradition was so strong and widespread that it had to be included. Let me just repeat that again. The remembrance of the tradition was so strong and widespread that it had to be included. And what we see here is that Mary was indeed present, and that she was indeed present, and that was why John included her as one of the eyewitnesses. There was no attempt on John's part to downplay the witness of Mary simply because she was a woman. And what we find is that Mary... This person who was, who, in a society where there's such a low view of women, Mary was included as an eyewitness. And what we find here with the eyewitness of Mary is actually something very important and something very important about the nature of Christianity. It actually shows us the inclusive nature of Christianity. Now, how so? We find in a culture that demeans and downplays the role of women, the Christian faith didn't exclude them. What the Christian faith does is that it includes them and it gives equal dignity to them. And what we find, interestingly enough, is that 
if you, as we look at this passage, that the reason why Peter is included is actually significant as well. You see, Peter, when he denied Jesus, that was a very embarrassing thing. It was embarrassing for, G- for Peter to not just deny Jesus once, not twice, but three times. And despite his repeated denials and despite his betrayal of his master, John actually included Peter as one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, one of the first few eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, John, he didn't try to exclude Peter because of the embarrassing thing that he did earlier, because of the denials that he did of Jesus Christ. And in fact, what we'll find at the end of the Gospel of John is that Peter will be restored to a position of leadership by Jesus himself. So Peter, despite everything that he did, despite all of the denials of Jesus that he did, he was included as one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And friends, the Christian faith is all-encompassing. It is inclusive in its scope. The message of the gospel is not exclusive. It's not circumscribed to a particular type of people, to a particular group of people. Now, you might feel unworthy, just like Peter himself, when he betrayed his master, when he denied his master. Perhaps you feel unworthy, just like Peter. Or perhaps you are like Mary. You are someone who feel ostracized at your workplace, that you are rejected by society or rejected wherever you are. And what we have here with the Christian faith is that the Christian faith accepts both kinds of people. And in fact, the Christian faith embraces everyone who would turn and flee to Jesus. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, that there is rest for all who are weary and heavy laden. And the only requirement for us is to come to Him. Now, it doesn't say that you need to have a university degree before you can come to Jesus. It doesn't say that you need to have a high SES before you can come to Jesus. Now, for those who are new to the lingo, SES basically means social economic status. You don't need to have that before you can come to Jesus. What Jesus tells us is to simply come to Him. And that in and of itself will qualify you to get rest from Jesus Christ. And what this shows us is the inclusive nature of the Christian faith. But friends, our faith is not just all-encompassing. It's not just inclusive in its very being. The Christian faith is also a compelling faith. It gives us, there are persuasive reasons for believing in it. And this brings us to our second point. Now look at verse 6 of our text. This is what it says. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And then in verse 7, we're told that the face cloth was folded in a place by itself. Now, the word that's translated as saw in verse 6, in the original Greek, is actually not the typical word that you find to translate seeing or looking. Rather, the word that is given here, there's a sense of reasoning. There's a sense of theorizing. and There's a sense of examining intently. In other words, there was actually a process of reasoning that is involved here. There was a careful consideration and examination of the evidence as they seek to explain why Jesus' body 
was missing. In France, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. It is not just a nice fictional story that it is nice to listen to, but rather it actually happened. Now, historians in general, they don't actually deny that a person called Jesus lived in first century Palestine. In fact, even secular and agnostic historians would agree that Jesus of Nazareth was actually a real person. So the problem for them is not whether Jesus existed or not. The problem lies in the truth of the resurrection. Now, most skeptics are actually fine with the fact that there was an empty tomb, but they don't actually find this evidence persuasive for them. They think that the empty tomb is not compelling enough for them to believe that Jesus truly rose from the dead. Now, perhaps, as they try to explain it, perhaps the body of Jesus was stolen. And in fact, grave robbery was a very common crime at a point of time. And this would probably explain why Mary thought in verse 2 of our text that Jesus' body was stolen. Or maybe it was the disciples themselves that stole his body. Perhaps they stole the body of Jesus so that they could fabricate a bogus story about the resurrection. And if that's the case, then our hope is actually grounded on a lie. Now, what's the problem with this view? Now, first of all, if you look at our text, if Jesus' body was really stolen by grave robbers, then why would they try, why would they bother to remove the linen cloths and to remove the face cloths? You know, why would they make the extra effort to remove the cloths and to have the face cloth, you know, folded nicely so that, you know, things would look good and it seems less messy? What they could have done was just stole the body. They could have just stolen the body and just make a run for it. And that would actually be what grave robbers actually did at a point of time. They just stole the body and they just disappeared. So why would they leave all of the linen cloths and have them folded nicely? So this actually undercuts the objection of the skeptics. Now, another response that we can give is this, and I think it's a pretty powerful argument. Now, apart from Jesus, there were other would-be messiahs who were killed by the Romans in the first century. And when they died, the movements that they were leading actually came to very tragic ends. None of these so-called messiahs actually came back to life. And when they died, what happened was that the followers were so distraught that they could never actually recover from the deaths of these so-called messiahs. And in fact, what we find with the disciples of Jesus was that this was the case for them, that they were actually so distraught and they were so sorrowful because their Lord and Savior has actually died. And in some ways, they were similar to these other messianic movements in terms of how they responded. But then, what we find is that something incredible actually happened. This Jesus movement didn't actually come to an end. In fact, this movement actually grew and it exploded into a global movement. In fact, if you look at the, the most recent global statistics on religion, what you'll find is that out of all of the major religions, Christianity has the highest number of followers in the world. And we need to account for this massive growth. Why is it that this movement 
led by Jesus, actually grew while all of these other movements actually died off. And we need to see that the most plausible explanation was that Jesus truly came back from the dead. Now, we can spend more time, you know, looking at other objections and we can try to address them, but that will have to be tabled for another time. And perhaps you would like to join us next month for Jesus Over Coffee, where we will go deeper into who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, let us come back to our text. And what we find in our text is that there's something else over here. It wasn't just reasoning. It wasn't just exploring of the facts. Now, come with me to verse 8 of our text. It tells us that the other disciple, again, probably referring to the Apostle John here, he went into the tomb and he saw and believed. We're told that John not only saw what was left in the tomb, but he also believed. And what did John believe in? He saw the evidence that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And based on all of these signs that were present in the empty tomb, John, the Apostle John, he believed. He didn't see, and as we find here in this passage, he didn't actually see the risen Jesus Christ, but he believed based on the evidence that was present. And here we actually find a very helpful distinction in the Christian faith, a distinction between knowing and believing. And this is a very crucial distinction between knowing and believing. Now, you may know about the historical facts. You may know everything. But just knowing in and of itself is actually not enough. Faith is not just about knowing. It's not just about being able to reason to certain truths. In fact, what we find in the Christian faith is that it's not just about knowing the facts of the resurrection, but it's about believing and it's about embracing the fact of the resurrection. Now, what is the nature of the belief? What's the nature of the belief of the disciples? Well, look at verses 9 and 10. Now, we are told that the disciples, they did not yet understood, they did not understand the scripture and that he must rise from the dead. And then what we find in verse 10 was that they simply went back to their homes in an unassuming way. Now, as we read these verses, it actually seems somewhat anticlimactic, you know, in light of the resurrection, that they simply saw this and then they just went back home and that was it. But it actually helps us to see something else. The point here in verses 9 and 10 was not that they, they didn't actually believe that Jesus came back to life. We saw that in verse 8, that John saw and he believed. But rather what we find here with the disciples was that they didn't actually know how this fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have all of the information before they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, eventually, what we find is that the disciples themselves, they actually came to a fuller understanding of the resurrection in light of the Old Testament scriptures. But at the same time, this, this fact didn't actually downplay the fact that they actually believed at a point of time that when they went to the tomb, they saw and they believed. So they did believe, but their belief was not a comprehensive belief. But at the same time, it doesn't downplay the belief of the disciples. So the disciples, they didn't know every single thing, but that was enough. Just seeing the empty tomb was enough so that they could believe. 
Now, friends, what we have here is a faith that is historically true. And based on what is presented, we actually have sufficient reasons to believe. And yet not all of us, I think this, I can say this, that not all of us will actually find this convincing. Now, perhaps you remain skeptical despite everything that was said just before this. Perhaps you need to explore the Christian faith before you are able to commit. And perhaps you might say something like, I need to know every single thing. I need to know everything before I can believe. And the question for us is this, do we really need to do that? Do we really need to know every single thing before we can believe? And in some ways, this is actually similar to, and I'll just give an example. This is actually similar when we come to know about the theory of gravitation. Now, many of us learned about gravity through the story of Isaac Newton's apple. Now, Newton, as the story goes, he saw an apple falling from a tree, and this led him to wonder why. You know, why would apples fall straight to the ground? And the answer, as Newton came up with it, was because of gravity, that when apples fall from the tree, they fall straight down. And what goes up must come down. And this is how we learned about gravity. Now, no one actually told us about the equation to try and you know, calculate the gravitational field. If you still remember your JC physics, you know, G equals to GM over R squared. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter. But in physics, you have complicated equations to calculate the gravitational field. And no one actually told us about the, general, the theory of general relativity that Einstein came up with. You know, we didn't know all of this before we believed in gravity. We didn't know all of this, and yet at the same time, we actually believed. And what happened, what happens is that we grow in our understanding of gravity as we study, as we study it more and as we know more about it. And similarly, what we find here in the resurrection of Jesus is this, that we have sufficient reasons to believe in the resurrection. There's enough evidence to believe in the truth of the resurrection. And yet, perhaps there are other reasons why you're reluctant to believe. Maybe the reason is because you had really bad experiences with, Christ with people who call themselves Christians. And your experience has left such a bad impression that it has made you so utterly difficult for you to believe in the Christian faith. Now, what this passage encourages us to do is to not look to our bad experiences with Christians because the fact is that no Christian is or can be perfect. No Christian is perfectly consistent with their own beliefs. Or rather, what we're encouraged to do is to look at the empty tomb, look at what is presented to us, and we are called to believe in Jesus in the very one who has risen from the dead. So this is the Christian faith, that it is compelling, that it gives us persuasive reasons to believe in. Now finally, what we find in the resurrection of Jesus is that the Christian faith is actually encouraging. It gives us hope for the present. And this brings us to our final point. Now you might wonder, you know, what is actually so hopeful 
about this passage, you know, as you read from verses 1 to 10, you know what? It's actually so hopeful because after all, we don't actually see Jesus in this passage. We don't see Jesus himself in this passage. So what is actually the hope that is found here? Well, the hope is found in what this passage points to. It points to the fact that Jesus is, he didn't remain dead. It points to the fact that Jesus is alive. In fact, what we'll find in the, in the next passage, which we'll look at next week, we will actually find the reason Jesus himself. But even if that's the case, even without the appearance of Jesus in this passage, simply believing that he has risen is actually sufficient. In fact, Jesus himself would later say in chapter 20 of, in verse 29 of chapter 20, that blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's a blessing for those who believe without seeing. Now what this means for us is this, that the resurrection of resurrection actually changes everything. It changes those who trust in Jesus Christ. And what we find in the early church was that the disciples were transformed in such a radical way that they began to live in a very different way. They began helping people who were in need, and they did this surely, and they did this purely out of sheer love. They proclaimed the gospel wherever they went, no matter how hard it was, no matter the resistance that they faced as they proclaimed the gospel, they continued to preach and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these early disciples, they were so committed and they were so transformed that they were even willing to lose their lives for this same Jesus. And this is the extent of their transformation in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might have heard of this Japanese novelist by the name of Shusaku Endo. Now, he was a Catholic and he was best known for his most famous novel, which is called Silence. It was a novel that was adapted in the movie in 2016. Now, Shusaku Endo, he actually once said this, that when we don't believe in the resurrection, we'll be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. And when we try to explain how the lives of the early Christians actually changed, we'll be making such great leaps of faith as if we had believed in the resurrection to begin with. But the good news is that this is not just a mere story, that the resurrection did happen and it actually transformed the lives of the early Christian. Now, what is the reason behind this radical transformation? What is the reason why the early Christians acted in this way? And the reason was because they lived as people with hope. It was, they were no longer hoping in the things of this world. They were no longer hoping whether it's, faith, whether it's fame, whether it's wealth, or whether it's with status. You know, all of these things didn't matter to them as much anymore. But rather, it is hope in what the resurrection entails. What we find with the resurrection of Jesus is that, he, is that Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but he also conquered sin and he conquered death once and for all. 
Jesus came back to life and what we're promised is that those who trust in him may have the assurance that death will finally be defeated. You see, if Jesus had actually remained dead, you know, if he remained dead and buried in the tomb, then we will actually have no grounds for hope in life. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, that if Christ had not been raised, then our faith is futile and we're still dead in our sins. So even the Bible itself speaks to the necessity of the resurrection and actually tells us how important the resurrection actually is. Jesus has conquered death and this victory is now ours when we trust in Him. And what this means is that we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be fearful of the things in our world, things that might threaten our life, whether these are wars or whether these are diseases or anything that can really threaten us. It means that we can have peace. It means that we can have joy in the midst of this anxious world. And this right here is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's a hope that radically changes those who would embrace Him. And it's not just that. Those who trust in Him will be resurrected as well. And there are two aspects of this resurrection, that there is a spiritual and there's a physical aspect as well. Now, spiritually, the Bible tells us that believers are now alive. It tells us in Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 5, that we were formerly dead in our trespasses, but now we have been made alive in Jesus Christ. We're no longer stuck in our former pattern of sin. And those who belong to Jesus right now, we have new spiritual life, and we have the power to break free from the bondage to sin. And this makes a huge difference. This makes a world of difference. It means that when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it's not merely something that we do once a year on Easter Sunday. Rather, it tells us that we should rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus in every single moment of our life. That in every single moment, we rejoice in the fact that we have this new life in Jesus. And so it's not something that we simply do on Easter Sunday. We do it every single moment. And since Jesus has conquered death, let us now rejoice in Him and let us rejoice in the life that we have because of Him. So this is the spiritual resurrection that we have right now when we trust in Jesus. Now physically, we are told that we will be resurrected as well. As 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 puts it, the risen Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus came back to life, and he was the first one who came back to life. And what we find is that his resurrection actually guarantees that those who belong to him will be resurrected as well. Now, when will this happen? When will this physical resurrection actually happen? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day, and he will return in a day that no one knows about. But when he returns, it's going to be a glorious return, that our faith will be turned to sight at that very moment. And what we'll find is that Jesus will make all things new. 
He will make all things new. He will, make, he will usher in a new creation where there is sin no more. And at that point of time, we'll be given new resurrected bodies, physical bodies, and we will live with Jesus eternally in this new creation. And what we find here is that there is a future hope for us. There is something for us to look forward to, and we can look forward to that when Jesus returns. And this is why the Christian faith is so encouraging for us. It's encouraging because right now, we have spiritual life, and we can look forward to the day when Jesus returns. Now, many of us will be familiar with the novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it is a novel from the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which was written by C.S. Lewis. Now, this novel was adapted into a film some time ago. And if you have read the novel or if you have watched the film, you would remember that at one point in the story, in, at one point in the novel, that the lion, Aslan, was actually killed. You know, at that, point, at that point in the story, what Aslan did was that he sacrificed himself and he was killed by the witch in exchange for Edmund's safety. So he died as a substitute for Edmund. Now, as the sun began to rise, so this was after the death of Aslan, we have these two characters, Susan and Lucy. And what they did was that as the sun began to rise, Susan and Lucy went to the stone table where Aslan's dead body was. And after that, they decided to walk around for a little bit. When suddenly, they heard this loud noise. It was such a loud noise as if a giant had actually broken a giant plate. Now, Susan and Lucy, they decided to turn around with much fear. And when they turned around, they noticed that the stone table where Aslan's body was actually broke into two. And they noticed that the body of Aslan was missing. And what happened was that Susan and Lucy, they began crying. And they actually began to wonder what actually happened. You know, what accounted for this loud noise? And as they were crying and as they were you know, had their backs turned, and as they were walking away, suddenly they noticed something, that they heard a great voice, that there was this voice behind them. And C.S. Lewis, as he was trying to describe this scene, he actually describes it this way. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. So what we find, what accounted for, the, for this great voice was that Aslan had actually appeared. Aslan actually came back to life. And he appeared with such a resplendent glory that he actually outshone the brightness of the sun. And what we find is Aslan, the lion, coming back to life and appearing in glory. And at that moment of time, all of the fears and all of the sorrows that Susan and Lucy had, all of that turned into joy. All of that turned into rejoicing. And this, dear friends, is the glory of the risen Christ, that Jesus has come back from the dead, and he gives us hope in this fallen world. And as we come to a close, let us think about this question. How would you, ex how would you respond 
to the risen Christ. Now, if you're already a believer, then my hope is that we will be encouraged by the resurrection of Jesus. And let us be encouraged once more and let us cling on to the hope that is already ours. So this is my exhortation to those of us who are believers seated here. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, perhaps this is a question that you're exploring at this very moment. Perhaps you're wondering whether everything that I've actually said is actually true. You're wondering whether Jesus indeed came back to life. And what we find in John chapter 20 is that this message is true and it is and actually compels people to believe. Now the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what we find in John chapter 20 is that Christ is risen and he is risen indeed. And when you trust in Jesus, when you trust in this Savior, there is salvation to those who believe, and there is hope in this life. So let us all, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, let us behold Jesus in all of his glory. Let us discover the hope that is found only in Jesus. So as we conclude, let us consider ourselves, let us consider whether we will look to Jesus and whether we will find the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you that Jesus, he didn't simply die for our sins, but that he rose forth and he conquered death. And Father, we know that we can rejoice at because it is crowned with glory as the Lord of life. And Father, we pray that you will help us to cling on to the hope that is found in his resurrection. And Father, would you help us to see that Christ is truly our hope in life and in death. Father, would you renew our hearts so that we may rejoice and so that we may delight in the reality that Christ is risen and is risen indeed. And Father, we look forward to the day when Jesus makes his glorious return. And Father, we look forward to the day that we shall live with Jesus forevermore. And so, Father, we come before you and we thank you for hearing our prayers. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'll hand the time back to Hawkeye.